The text for our sermon this morning is Job chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Job 2, 1 through 10. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, and all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This time, we'd like to call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus teaches us that everything written in the Bible is about Him. It's in Luke 24. I try to explain this all the time when I preach. You know, some people think, oh, I know about Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, David and Goliath, and the story of Jesus. But those other stories are really about Jesus too. Jesus said everything in the Bible is about Him. So let's think about that as we think about the story that we just read about Job. Now what happened in our Bible story this morning? First, God said that Job was a holy man. You know, your parents have told a lot of stories about you. I don't know if you realize that or not. They tell aunts, uncles, grandparents, neighbors, and friends all about you. My daughter said her first words last night. My son learned how to ride his bike this week. In our story, God tells about Job. And he doesn't tell people who want to hear about Job either. God tells the devil about Job. He says, have you seen my servant Job? He's a righteous man. He loves me and he obeys me. The devil answered with a very wicked answer. He said, yeah, Job only loves you because you protect him. If you let him get sick, he wouldn't love you anymore. Now, we already know that that's not true because in the first chapter of Job, the devil sent robbers to steal all of Job's farm animals and a storm that killed all ten of Job's children. Job's livelihood and his family were already dead or stolen, but Job still loved and served God. So next, God let the devil make Job very sick. And God did this to prove that Job truly loved God. You see, the devil was saying that people only love God because they love themselves. They only love God for what they can get from God. So these bad things that happened to Job proved that the devil is a liar. God puts his love into his children's hearts so that they love him 
because of who he is and not because of what he does for them. And then Job's own wife made fun of him. She spoke evil words just like the devil. Are you still going to pretend to love God? Why don't you just curse him and die already? End your life and end your suffering. You know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, people stood around making fun of him. These people were supposed to be experts in the Bible. They should have known. And they watched Jesus preach and teach for over three years. And they never heard or saw him do anything or say anything wrong. All the Bible stories are really about Jesus. Job is a picture lesson. He was a picture lesson for God's people long before Jesus came. And I hope that you can see what I mean. When Jesus was baptized, God's voice spoke from heaven, saying, This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. Just like with Job, God told everyone how holy Jesus was. And even though Jesus was holy, many bad things happened to him, just like Job. Very few people believe that Jesus was a holy man, even though God himself had said so. Think of Job. God said that he was holy, and even his wife spoke bad about him. Shouldn't she have known she lived in the same house with him? Now, in the Apostles' Creed, we say, every Sunday, we say these words, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, who was Pontius Pilate? He was the governor of Judea, the place where Jesus lived. Pilate could tell that Jesus had never done anything wrong. He knew that Jesus had never sinned, and even though he knew this, he still condemned Jesus as a criminal and ordered him to be killed on a cross. God made this happen so that the whole world could see that Jesus didn't suffer and die for his own sins, but rather for ours. Jesus stood before a judge who could see that he wasn't guilty and still ordered him to be killed as a criminal. The stories of Job and Jesus teach us that the world hates God, and because it hates God, it also hates His holy children. Even when the world has to admit that God's children are righteous, they still hate them and treat them as criminals. Now, always remember, everything in the Bible is about Jesus. If you do this, you'll understand the stories in the Bible better you'll understand why God put those stories in His Bible, and you'll understand how great God's love for His children is. Now, after we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love Thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O oh, dear Lord, increase our love to Thy Word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by reviewing some of the things that we've already discussed about the book of Job. And I want to keep these details fresh in our minds because in nearly every sermon, these facts are crucial to understanding the doctrine of the text. I have repeatedly asserted that Job was the first written book of the Bible. I pointed out over and over, that Job knew from experience, from observation, and from the witness of his ancestors, the things that Moses would later record in Genesis 1 through 10. And I've argued that in this way. 
The books of the Bible were penned by witnesses of the events they recorded. And that wasn't because we couldn't trust the accounts otherwise. The penmen didn't need to witness the events in order to record them because God gave them the very words anyway. However, when we get the words of God penned by a witness, we get two things. We get the word of God and we get an eyewitness. And therefore, the Bible comes with its own confirmation. Now, considerations such as these have led me to conclude that the penman of Job was Elihu, the fourth of Job's friends, the silent witness to all the dialogues, one who doesn't even speak until chapter 36. Now, again, Job is the very first book of the Bible that was written. And what are its topics? God's absolute sovereignty, the apparent injustice in the world, God's preservation of His people, the ultimate triumph of God's children, all of which is considered through the lens of the suffering of the righteous. In Luke 24, one of my all-time favorite passages, Jesus tells us that everything in Scripture is about Him. And therefore, we affirm, in accordance with Jesus' own words, that this opening salvo of the Bible, the book of Job, speaks of Jesus. It is a prophecy about Him. In this book, we find a man, affirmed of God as righteous, suffering unimaginable pain and anguish, all the while being persecuted by friends and family. That is as apt a picture of Jesus as you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Our text this morning illustrates these points. We have God's testimony about Job's character. Next, we have a description of the magnitude of Job's sufferings. And remember, this is round two already. Job has already lost his children and his livelihood. We also have the mental anguish that Job suffers at the hands of his wife. Her attitude is a foreshadowing of what Job is about to endure at the hands of his friends. Kind of reminds me of Zechariah 13.6, which foretells of Jesus suffering injury at the hands of his friends. Scripture says that God the Father bore witness of Jesus that he was well-pleasing unto him. Scripture further tells us how Jesus was wounded, bruised, chastised, scourged. Jesus t- uh, scripture tells us how Jesus was hated without a cause. Scripture tells us that although he could look his enemies dead in the eye and challenge them, which of you convicts me of sin? These same men that had lived for three and a half years in the presence of his perfectly sinless purity paid false witnesses, trumped up baloney charges, and murdered a man they knew was innocent. They stood before Pilate. They shook their fists in God's face and dared God to do His worst. His blood be on us and our children. And as Jesus was suffering inexpressible torments, they stood at the foot of His cross, jeering and taunting. If you're the king, come on down and we'll believe you. If God likes you so much, why won't He rescue you? Right out of the blocks, the Bible tells us of righteous Job, who endures suffering that doesn't seem consistent with the fact that he is a righteous man. His suffering is so severe that even friends, who by all accounts should know better, begin to question the quality of his character. Job's friends begin by suggesting that maybe, just maybe, Job's done something wrong. The more Job insists that he hasn't, the bolder their accusations against him. And by the end of the book, they're practically calling him a serial killer. 
What I want to do this morning is consider the reality of Christ's sufferings as foreshadowed by Job's, and we'll do so by just following the words of the creed. Our outline then will run as follows. Number one, the reality of the sufferings, and then secondly, the use of this doctrine for self-examination, and thirdly, the use of this doctrine for comfort. Our first point then, the reality of the sufferings. Let's first of all realize that both natures of Christ were at work in His suffering. The eternal Son of God assumed a human nature into personal union, and His divine nature gave power and efficacy to the sufferings of the human nature. In His human nature, Christ suffered pain. Isaiah 53, 5 declares, He was wounded. He was bruised. He suffered this pain because God cursed sin in the flesh. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross. His human soul suffered as well. Even prior to His crucifixion, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Sorrow to the point of death, and Jesus didn't exaggerate. His divine nature was also at work. His divine nature made His blood so precious that it could atone for all the elect who believe in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. Acts 20, verse 28 tells us that the church of God was, quote, purchased with His own blood. The union of the two natures is so thorough, complete, that, that Paul can say that God purchased the church with His own blood. The blood of Jesus of Nazareth is the blood of God. We sang a minute ago, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Next, we have this word suffered. And this refers to all of the anguish and pain and sorrow that Jesus bore from the beginning of His incarnation until the end of His life, in both His soul as well as His body. From His very birth, He was reckoned as a worm, a reproach of men, despised of people. As poor as any of us may be, none of our babies were ever born in an animal pen or laid in a feeding trough. Now, you know, there's something almost inexplicable about exposure to true righteousness. God Himself bore witness to Job's character. No one would have been more familiar with Job's character than Mrs. Job, and yet our text tells us that she exclaims, are you still holding to your principles? Why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with already. This is a woman who shared a home with a man of whom God testified was upright. She isn't impressed. The Gospels tell us that the Jews were constantly insulting Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 41, the Pharisees make this snide remark, we weren't born of fornication, and that's a cheap shot. They knew that Mary and Joseph weren't married yet when Mary turned up pregnant. And Judaism as a religion is practically built upon such degrading comments about our Lord Jesus. We all know this to be true. You've never heard anyone, when they accidentally hit their thumb with a hammer or bust their knuckles when a wrench slips, scream, Ted Bundy or 
David Berkowitz, you know, the name of a real sinner. No, whose name is cursed? The name of him who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. What does that tell you about mankind and righteousness? Near the end of his life, Jesus' suffering increased in intensity. He was surrounded by men who wouldn't rest until they had pierced his hands and feet, as David prophesied a thousand years earlier. They seized and bound him. They spat on him and dragged him from Caiaphas to Pilate to Herod to back to Pilate, accusing him of falsehood and slander and condemning him as a criminal. And in the end, they nailed him on a cross between murderers and thieves. And in the meantime, his soul was in such agony that he sweat blood. An angel from heaven was sent to strengthen him. And he went on to suffer such hellish agony that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This short word, suffered, captures all the unimaginable horrors that our Lord endured in both soul and body. We further affirm under Pontius Pilate. And we must carefully consider what this signifies. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. Rome was the superpower of the day. Now, we kind of like the idea of superpowers, because mostly because our nation is or has been considered a superpower. But Scripture depicts superpowers as enemies of the kingdom of God. In this world, there are two realms at odds with each other. What Augustine called the city of man and the city of God. And the city of man lives in perpetual rebellion against the city of God, striving to attain and to keep power. Power over men, power over nature, power over history, power over knowledge, power over everything. And therefore, when Jesus came to earth, it was inevitable that he would come into conflict with the city of man. And God so ordained it that there was a delegate of the world power living and ruling in Judea. The known world was ruled by imperial Rome, Tiberius Caesar was emperor, and Pontius Pilate governed Rome on his behalf. Now, of all the things that the creed could contain, it seems odd that it contains this man's name, right? The names of Mary and Joseph, James, Peter, John, they're not in the creed. But this Pontius Pilate is named. And the significance lies in the fact that he was the representative of the world power of the day. Further, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He admitted it several times. And although the scheming Jews were guiltier of Christ's death, Pilate followed a multitude to do evil. The representative of the world power knowingly, willingly suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and condemned the holiest man who ever lived. We see this foreshadowed in our text when God declares that Job was afflicted, like Jesus, quote, without cause. Now, Jesus was killed by crucifixion, and that is significant because crucifixion was the official Roman form of execution. It fulfilled the thousand-year-old prophecy of David in Psalm 22. And when David penned those words, crucifixion as a form of execution hadn't even been invented yet. It fulfilled the even older prophecy that Jesus would bear God's curse by being hanged upon a tree. Jesus' death was official. So he wasn't pushed off a cliff or poisoned or smothered with a pillow when he was a baby in the manger. 
the leaders of the Jews and the Roman authorities conspired together to kill the Son of God, knowing full well what they were doing. Psalm 2 foretold this. Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 reads, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Two groups are spoken of here. The nations, that is the Gentile world, and the people, which refers to Israel. And that distinction is found everywhere in Scripture. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders conspired together against God and His Christ. They knew what they were doing. They knew whom they were rejecting. They were hell-bent on killing God's Son in order to throw off God's rule. I wonder if you noticed that earlier in the Gospel reading. Pilate's principal question to Jesus was, Art thou a king then? Both the Jews and the Romans rejected Jesus based on His claim to be king. Exactly what Psalm 2 tells us. What God foretold a thousand years earlier came to pass exactly as He said it would. Now this shows us that Jesus didn't suffer this shameful death by crucifixion by sheer chance, dumb luck, or even by the self-determined plotting of evil people. He was crucified by the determinate counsel and decree of God. Peter and the apostles affirm this in prayer in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 27. Immediately after quoting Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, Peter says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, in other words, the Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The death of Jesus was decreed by God from eternity. Now, you see in those words verification of how I explained Psalm 2. The Roman rulers and the Jews conspired intentionally to kill God's Christ. You also see that it wasn't a chance event because there's no such thing as chance events. Herod, Pilate, the Romans, and the Jews did exactly what, God, what God's decree ordained would be done. The creed then affirms that Jesus both died and was buried, and we'll consider that in more detail next week. But in these words, we confess that Jesus' soul departed from his body. That's how the Bible defines death. In Genesis 35, verse 18, the Bible says this of Rachel. And so it was, as her soul was departing, in parentheses, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. When we affirm that Jesus died, we are affirming our belief that, as Ecclesiastes words it, the silver cord was severed. The union of body and soul was divided. Jesus could have bypassed death and come down from the cross, but he had to die to fulfill Isaiah 53.10, to make his soul an offering for sin. Part of Jesus' suffering, I'm sure, was the knowledge of what was coming. When some of us were little, we got in trouble, say, at the grocery store. And mom or dad said, you're going to get a spanking when we get home. Now, that spanking was no different qualitatively than any other spanking you ever got, but what it seemed worse because of the anticipation. Knowing it was coming 
was sometimes worse than the spanking itself. In John 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. John 12, halfway through the gospel. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then a couple of verses later, he says, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And John explains that statement this way. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus knew that he would one day be crucified. His death and the manner of it was never a secret from him. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. This means that he held the whip in existence as it tore flesh from his back. That he held the priest's hands in existence as they slapped his face. That he filled the lungs of the false witnesses with air as they lied about him. Jesus held his own life until he had exhausted the infinite wrath of God against the sins of the elect. When Jesus had drunk the cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs, only then did he cry out, it is finished, and give up the ghost. So it's not that Jesus blithely allowed himself to be crucified. He willingly walked the path of obedience to God's will, the path that led directly to the cross. Every word he spoke, every step he took, every miracle he performed served to guarantee that he would be crucified. Paul affirms this in Philippians 2 verse 8 where he writes, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Every time Jesus debated the Pharisees, every time he raised someone from the dead, fed the multitudes, or healed the lame, the deaf, and the blind, he was taking another step toward Golgotha. Now we think of his anguish in Gethsemane, praying to avoid the cup. But in reality, every act of his life was a trial of his obedience. Would he drink the cup or not? In Hebrews 5, we read the following. Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. This is referring to Jesus' prayers in Gethsemane. And Paul says he was heard. In other words, Jesus' prayer was answered. So we must ask, what did Jesus pray for in Gethsemane? What did he ask of the Father? Luke 22, 43 gives us the answer. Jesus prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus' prayer was that God's will be done. And it was God's will that Jesus be smitten of God and afflicted, that he be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that he be oppressed and afflicted, and that he open not his mouth as God laid on him the iniquity of us all. What proof do we have that the Father answered this prayer? Why, the very next verse, Luke twenty-two forty-four says, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And we now come to our second point, which is the use of this doctrine for self-examination. We must determine whether we truly believe this article 
of the creed unto our salvation. And to do so, we should examine ourselves whether we truly have the following marks. Number one, have we been brought to a deep hatred and sorrow over our sins? I mean, look, if we believe that the Son of God had to grievously suffer for our sins, we should grieve over our sins. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Secondly, do we believe that our flesh was crucified with its lusts so that we must live in obedience to our Savior? Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Those who don't believe this article and don't live accordingly aren't saved by Christ's sacrifice. Rather, they're condemned by it. Sac uh, salvation is unto obedience. 1 Peter 1 2 tells us that. Election is unto obedience. Thirdly, are we patient in all adversity? We are called to this because Christ, by his suffering, showed us how we must follow in his footsteps. And fourthly, are we prepared to offer our lives for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church? 1 John 3 16 tells us, By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, the difference between the death of Christ and the death of a martyr is this. Christ's death is a sin offering. The martyr's death is a thank offering. Jesus' death atones for our sins. If we suffer or if we die for him, we're merely offering thanks. The righteous receive crowns, not because they've made an offering, but because Christ did. And our third point is, how does this doctrine of Christ's suffering, how does it provide us comfort? The catechism opens with the famous line, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Now, by opening that way, the catechism is teaching us that the doctrines of the Christian faith are the source of comfort to weary sinners. Now, self-examination assures us that what we believe concerning this article is also evident in our lives. This, in turn, provides us with comfort amidst our trials and sufferings. The suffering and death and burial of Jesus provide us with the following comforts. First of all, we are saved from the power of our spiritual enemies, the devil, sin, hell, and the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Secondly, we know that our afflictions will serve for our good and will increase our glory in heaven. Our sorrows and sufferings do not come from an angry, righteous judge as punishment for our sins. No, dear ones, they come from a merciful Father as chastening. Our crosses are blessed by the cross of Christ. Hebrews 12.10 says... 
but He chastens us for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Thirdly, we no longer fear death and the grave. Christ's death has taken away sin, which is the sting of death. If you break the point off an arrow, it can't hurt you anymore. In the same way, death can't hurt us because Christ has taken away its venomous barb of sin. Yes, we must die, but death isn't a curse for us. It's a blessing. Death is now the passage to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Our graves are not caverns of death, but bedrooms for our bodies to rest in until the coming of Christ. And we should remember this when we lay in the grave our loved ones who die in the Lord. And finally, we know that God will not forsake us in our affliction, no matter how great it may be. We know this because Christ has already suffered the anguish of hell for us. There's no greater pain conceivable than the torment of hell, and Christ has already borne that for us. Hebrews 12.3, Paul says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Dear ones, we will all suffer incredibly difficult and painful things. We may endure trials which we feel no one else can appreciate and understand. Now, it's wrong to think or say that because Jesus appreciates and understands. And therefore, we rest in confidence that since Jesus understands, God has not forsaken us. God was well pleased with His Son who endured all the hellish torments of God's wrath against our sins. There are no more sins to suffer for if we be the children of God. Jesus died for our sins. God will not violate justice and double jeopardy us into hell by making us pay again for what Christ has already paid. Paul assures us that no tribulation can separate us from the love of Christ because these afflictions are sanctified by the afflictions of Christ in such a way that they serve only to refine our faith. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul writes, But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God provides us with a way of escape because Christ was not given a way of escape. If you truly believe the words of the creed, He suffered. Then you believe that whatever you may suffer is not punishment for your sin, since that's why Jesus suffered. Whatever you may suffer is not for your sin, but for your sanctification, and therefore, ultimately, for your comfort. Let us pray.